It is uh, really great to be here in my home church. This is actually one thing I can now cross off my bucket list. Uh, and last week I preached in South Dakota and I got to see Mount Rushmore and I crossed that off my bucket list. So it must be the end times. I don't know. Um, I love the theme of this series. What is the Spirit saying to the church? Because I believe that the Spirit is always provoking and calling the church into the world, into the world's pain, to be God's agent of healing and redemption. But the question for us is always whether we are listening to what the Spirit is saying. Today I want to speak to you about the requirements that God places on his people around the issues of justice and mercy. As the head of World Vision, I have a front row seat to issues of justice and mercy in our world on a daily basis. And World Vision has the privilege of bringing justice and mercy to millions of people who have been marginalized in our world, people that Jesus called the least of these. Before I begin, I want to warn you, I'll be jumping around the scripture a little bit if you want to follow along in your Bibles. In addition to the Luke text that we just read, I'll be referencing Matthew 25. And I want to start with that great, great verse from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is one of the great statements of God's expectations of his people for justice and mercy. And I'm reading from the contemporary English version because of the nuance in this version. The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. Now, I, I like this translation particularly because it suggests that our concern for mercy and justice need to go, on, go beyond just being people who live justly and who personally demonstrate mercy and compassion. See, God calls us to a broader commitment than that. He calls us to make mercy and justice priorities in our society and in the world. So not just what I do, but making, making it a priority in our world. See that justice is done and let mercy be our first concern. You see, we can't stand by and see racial discrimination in our country or our city and just say, well, God, at least I'm not a bigot. You see, God wants us to take on bigotry in our nation and to see that justice is done. We can't look at the desperate plight of Syrian refugees running from violence and religious extremism and say, Lord, we had nothing to do with this. It's not our problem. No, God wants mercy to be our first concern. And he expects us to use our influence and our resources to stand in the gap for suffering people. Saying to God, it's not our fault, just doesn't cut it. You see, God set a much higher bar than that because he takes these words, justice, mercy, he takes them very seriously. I've come to believe that one of the deterrents to seeking justice and showing mercy in our world is that our vision is always kind of distorted. As Paul said, for now we see in a mirror dimly. The angry politics of our day influence us and pull us in different directions. And so we struggle to see the world through God's eyes. If only we could see the world through God's eyes. It's as if we're all wearing these thick glasses with multiple distorting lenses that cloud our vision. You see, we have a white lens or a black lens. We might have a rich lens or a poor lens, a male lens and a female lens, a Republican lens, a Democrat lens, 
a Presbyterian or Pentecostal or maybe Baptist lens, and perhaps even more powerfully, we all look through this lens of our American patriotism, sometimes letting our national identity overpower our Christian identity. It's no wonder we have a such, such a hard time seeing the world through God's eyes. And let's be honest as Christians, if we look over the last few hundred years, we did not see slavery. We did not see the oppression of women. We did not see civil rights for African Americans. And we still don't see clearly God's great concern for the least of these in our world who often don't look like us or speak like us. Justice and mercy require us to see the world as God sees it. And God sees without our distortions of sin and class and race, gender, culture, or national identity. You know, World Vision's founder, Bob Pierce, was famous for this short prayer. He said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And you see, as Christians, we should always be praying that prayer to see as God sees, to feel as God feels, and to love as God loves. I want to use this morning the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that we just read to derive some principles about justice and mercy. This is just a simple story of two people, a rich man, a beggar, and a fly, uh, who's buzzing around up here. Uh, he's going to go away. I know he is. Let me just reread the first few verses of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. I want to make three observations about mercy and justice from this passage. Uh, Number one, injustice and lack of mercy are often passive rather than active. This passage paints a shocking picture of disparity between rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. The first thing to notice is that the rich man did absolutely nothing to hurt Lazarus. He didn't beat him or mistreat him in any way. Just in the same way, I'm sure no one here has done anything to harm the homeless in Seattle or the poor in Africa or the Syrian refugees. Undoubtedly, our rich man felt quite innocent of any wrongdoing until he found himself in Hades having a conversation with God. You see, his was a sin of omission, not commission. But for Jesus, sins of omission always seemed at least as serious as sins of commission. The towering passage of the separation of the sheep and the goats on the day of judgment in Matthew 25 suggests that our sins of omission will be weighted very heavily by God on that judgment day. I want you to listen to the heat of anger as Jesus talks about people who neglected justice and mercy. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick and in prison and, and did not help you? When? He will reply, truly I tell you, 
Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. You see, every transgression listed here is a sin of omission, a failure to see that justice is done, and a failure to make mercy our first concern. When the rich man walked by Lazarus, it was his Matthew 25 moment. And like those who Jesus cursed for their apathy in this passage, he failed the test. He failed the test. Point number two, injustice and lack of mercy are the result of objectifying people. While the rich man knew the name of Lazarus, he didn't actually consider him a person worthy of his concern. For all practical purposes, this man Lazarus was invisible, a non-person. Most, most of the disparity, violence, and oppression in our world is the result of objectifying and dehumanizing the other believing that they're not like us. You see, we place labels on entire groups which make them somehow less human and less worthy of our mercy and compassion. They are the homeless. They are the refugees. They're illegal immigrants. They're Palestinians. They're Muslims. They're Asian, Hispanic, or black. Pick your label. If the other is not really like us, we always find ways to mistreat, Ignore, exploit, exclude, or even kill them. The Rwandan genocide, Hutu and Tutsi, the Holocaust, and how about our own American history with the Native American peoples, with slavery and civil rights? These are all prime examples of not being able to see the world through God's eyes and not listening to what the Spirit is saying to the church. In each of these cases, churches and Christians were complicit in labeling and exploiting entire groups of people. Using labels to diminish the humanity of a whole group is a tactic as old as history itself. It allows us to somehow justify excluding and rejecting them without God's requirement for justice and mercy. Point number three, injustice is also personal. You know, regardless of the ultimate causes that might have created the disparity between Lazarus and the, and the rich man, the rich man had a personal opportunity to set things right. It would have been so very simple for him to simply instruct one of his servants to bring Lazarus the scraps that fell from his table, just a little food, maybe a comfortable mat to sleep on, maybe some lotion for his sores. But he didn't. He didn't. And surely as a good Jew, this rich man knew by heart the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yet still he took no personal action to set things right. But you see, the second greatest commandment holds us to an even higher standard. Jesus doesn't want us to help Lazarus. He commands us to love Lazarus. Because Jesus knows that if we love him, we will surely help him. Think about that for a minute. Jesus doesn't want us to help the Lazaruses of our world. He wants us to love them because we always, love, we always help the people that we love. Finally, let me make one more sober point about this parable. I think the thing that should really shake us up a bit in this room is this. We are the rich man. We are the rich man. We are the wealthy, we're the educated, we're the privileged, we are the powerful by any standard of measure you might want to apply on a global basis. 
The American church is the wealthiest church in the history of Christendom, with more resources, more influence, and more power than any Christian nation in history. And just like the rich man in Jesus' parable, we will someday be having our sobering conversation with God. Now, it's easy to speak about seeing that justice is done in an abstract or a theological sense, but I'd like to apply this theology to something happening in our world today, something controversial that is without a doubt the greatest humanitarian crisis of our generation, and it's the refugee crisis in the Middle East. I returned just last month from Iraq and Lebanon, where I had the opportunity to meet with refugee families, uh, both Muslim and Christian, and I've learned that most Americans have no sense of the scope and scale of this tragedy, which has displaced 12 million people in and around Syria and 3 million more in Iraq. There are 15 million Lazaruses who have been laid at our gate because of these crises. I want to make that 15 million number a little more real for you because I've learned that most people don't relate to big numbers. I want you to imagine that every man, woman, and child in the following American cities had to run for their lives, leave their homes with nothing but the clothes on their backs and the money in their pockets. Here's my list. San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Albuquerque, Austin, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, Fort Worth, Charlotte, and Detroit. I'm not done. Let's add Denver, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Boston, Nashville, Baltimore, and how about throwing in Seattle and Tacoma to bring it a little closer to home. That's the number of refugees that have fled from their homes in and around Syria and Iraq. And that's what this crisis means in terms of human suffering. It's as if a massive wound has been opened in the Middle, of East, in the Middle East caused by the horrific Syrian war and the rise of extremist groups and human beings are pouring out of this wound like a river of blood. Human beings, each made in the image of God. It is the worst human catastrophe of our time, and 80% of those IDPs and refugees are women, children, and the elderly. I met a grandmother last month in Lebanon caring for her three small grandchildren in a 10 by 10 tent, where they live now. As they fled from Syria, her husband was killed. The mother of her grandchildren was killed. Her son, the father of these children, went missing. And this 70-year-old woman wept for one hour as she told me her story. She cries out for our mercy, and she wants justice for her people. World Vision, I'm grateful to say, is on the ground in all five of the most affected countries, Syria, inside Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Turkey. And our programs have touched more than two million lives there over the last four years. We're helping them right where they are because most of them don't want to leave the Middle East. And this is an important point. A very small trickle of refugees are coming to the United States and they deserve our compassion and love. But 98% of them are staying in the region and they need our help right where they are. World Vision is determined to stand in the gap with these broken people, demonstrating the love of Christ in their hour of need. Last October, I traveled to Lebanon again with Michael Gerson. Some of you might remember him. He was the former speechwriter for President Bush, and he's now a columnist for the Washington Post. And 
I wanted Michael to see some of the refugees and meet them, see them with his own eyes. And when he returned, he wrote a few powerful columns. Here's a quote from one of his columns. The Syrian refugee crisis is now the greatest humanitarian challenge since the height of the AIDS pandemic. As with that tragedy, it is a generational test. If the global refugee response is insufficient here, it is insufficient. If American foreign policy is resigned or indifferent, it has badly lost its way. And if American churches and charities are not relevant here, they are irrelevant. Michael Gerson's statement should get our attention. He's suggesting that this is one of those defining moments for the church. He calls it a generational test. Many of our political leaders right now are shouting about closing our borders, building walls, banning Muslims from our midst, and even more so after Orlando and San Bernardino. Last fall, 31 governors said their states would not accept even one refugee. One presidential candidate said he would not even allow a five-year-old Syrian orphan to come to his state. To me, this is breathtaking. We have somehow taken the tragedy of 15 million desperate people and we've managed to make it all about us. But Jesus said, I was a stranger and you invited me in. But surely Christians and churches aren't buying into this, right? Wrong. In a recent survey of American pastors that World Vision conducted with LifeWay Research, we found that 80% of our churches have no involvement whatsoever in helping Syrian refugees either here or in the region. I was recently with the head of one of the largest American denominations, and he told me that the people in the pews of his churches are increasingly getting their theology from cable news instead of scripture. If this is a generational test for our nation and for the church, my worry is that we may be failing that test. The Lord has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. You see, justice takes some courage and mercy requires sacrifice. And walking humbly with our God demands that we take seriously the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, as ourselves. I want to introduce you today to just one of those refugees and tell her story. She's a 10-year-old girl named Haya. Haya and her sisters and her mother are now refugees in a massive tent camp in Jordan. 80,000 people, tents as far as the eye can see. When I arrived in Jordan, Haya had written me a letter which she stood up and read aloud. It was her cry for help, 10 years old. Listen to her letter. I think she'd be pleased if I read an excerpt from it today. She said, peace to you. I'm talking to you on behalf of the Syrian children. I'm calling on you, the people of the other world. Have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria? Syria is in pain. Syria is bleeding. Syria is crying for her children. Her children were her candles and they have faded out. Please, my name is Haya, and my father was killed. I loved my father so much, and now I will never see him again. I think Haya's letter was written to all of us in this room today, because you see, we are those people of the other world. 
What if we saw this catastrophe as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to share the love of Christ in the heart of the Middle East? What if we saw children like Haya as the Lazarus that God has placed at our gate, desperate to be seen, desperate to be helped, to be, to be, to be helped and desperate for just a shred of hope in her life? These refugees are the most marginalized people in our world today. They are truly the least of these. And if you look at the things that were listed in Matthew 25, they are a virtual laundry list of refugee needs. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and the refugees are hungry and without food. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. They need clean water and sanitation in these camps. I needed clothes and you clothed me. These people fled with just the clothes on their backs, and they need warm clothes to survive the winters. I was sick, and you looked after me. They're in desperate need of basic medical care. I was in prison, and you visited me, and they're imprisoned in the squalor of these refugee camps. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. They are strangers in the world, unwanted, unwelcome, and unloved. So why should we help them? Maybe because Jesus said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. You see, when we make mercy our first concern and we see that justice is done, we do it not just for the poor and downtrodden, we do it to Jesus as well. And the corollary is also true that when we ignore them, we ignore Jesus. I believe that this is a Matthew 25 moment for the American church. What will we do in the face of the greatest human suffering of our day? How will we respond? Have you ever thought of the children of Syria? That's the question a 10-year-old girl named Haya has posed to us today. And Jesus is waiting for our answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sit here comfortable, and they are suffering. We sit here with plenty, and they sit with nothing, Lord. We sit here with friends and in community, and they are unwelcome, unwanted, and unloved. Father, help our hearts to be broken by the things that break your heart in this crisis in the world, and help us to uh, find your heart to respond with the love of Christ. We ask your blessing on this congregation, Lord, and we thank you for the things that we are able to do in the world uh, because you called us into the world, Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.